Oh, hi, podcast listeners. There's many ways you can listen to The Real Nerds Podcast. You can subscribe on iTunes. You can also subscribe on Stitcher Radio. You want to send us a Twitter message? You can do that. It's so easy, at Real Nerds. Like us on Facebook, Real Nerds Podcast. You can visit our website, realnerdspodcast.com, where there will be a lot of articles for you to not only read, but to listen to our previous shows. Do you like your stories told through pictures? Then you can also follow us at Real Nerds on Instagram. You can also call us, 720-6Nerds5. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Camera, action! Well, a real nerd knows who shot, and a real nerd can follow the plot, and a real nerd can... Don't talk film! I'm sorry. Take it outside. Welcome to Real Nerds Podcast, unofficially the official podcast of Denver Fan Expo 2022 and beyond, which is going to be happening soon because it is 4.34 on Sunday. This closes in 26 minutes. We did it. We made it to the end. Whew, what a weekend. Yeah, th- I-, I hate selfies. But yeah, sure. Thanks, Zach. Uh, thanks to everybody who came out. Thanks to... Uh, we had Morgan uh, from Morgan. Uh, They Call Me Uncle, a YouTube show where he explains uh, pop culture of the past to his nephew and his friends. Nice. Uh, there was a jazz singer. Uh, yes. Uh, Anastasia. David Boop. The Predator anthology book. Because I like The Predator. But every week on Real Nerds Podcast, we see a new movie and we podcast our experience to the world. This week is a film that's been really long in the making. In fact, it's been so long in the making, I saw a preview of this film nine years ago at Telluride Horror Show. It's a film by Academy Award winning special effects guru Phil Tippett called Mad God. And I know you shared... Brad, I'm going to drop a bombshell on you right now. Oh, I know you shared this Careful. separately a couple weeks ago when you had the privilege to see it earlier. But for those who missed it, I'm going to put our interview with Phil Tippett from Telluride Horror Show 2013 into this very episode. So you can hear a process that we heard about nine years ago finally come to fruition in 2022. Mm-hmm. So here is the great Phil Tippett talking about the film Mad God. Welcome to Real Nerds Podcast at Telluride Horror 2013. I am Ryan, James, and Brad, and we have the honor with sitting with visual effects awesome dude, Phil Tippett. Thanks for coming on our show, sir. My pleasure. Uh, so you're at Telluride this year, kind of have a passion project here. It's called Mad God that I just got out of, and it's amazing. Uh, yeah. Do you mind telling everybody what Mad God is about and how it came around? Well, Mad God kind of describes defies description and and i'm not you know um i i look at it a little bit more like uh instead of you know uh, explanatory filmmaking that that makes sense of itself and creating a narrative that's maybe a little bit more like certain forms of writing where the the audience members themselves you know, complete the thing you know the, the a lot of the ideas in it are kind of stolen from dreams and the imagery is uh 
you know, it's not futuristic. It's very iconic. All all of the you know, objects and things are like very understandable in terms of our everyday experience, but they're put together in a way that is kind of broken and reconfigured. Um, a little bit like surrealistic. I wouldn't call it surrealistic, but it's using more of like a an unconscious frame of reference to build things with. Yeah, it comes across a lot like uh, like storytelling through world building, um, which I think is what is so engrossing about it, is that it drops you into this place, and because there's, you know, they, there's, they don't tell you anything, or you don't tell us anything, I should say, um, that you just, you're, you're soaking in everything as much as you can because you're trying to figure out exactly what, you know, and then like you said in your Q&A afterwards, then you move on so quickly that um, it just keeps us, you know, running to keep up. Uh, it's fascinating. It's, it's just absolutely Yeah, gorgeous. I was kind of thinking, you know, that, that the final form of the thing is is the memory of it after you watch it. You know, yeah. how, how that, that that's what the the experience really is. It's not, not the film. The film is just the way to get there. And is that because you got the idea from a dream? Because you said that as well. So when you dream, you think about your dream prior and then it's an interpretation of what you previously thought you were dreaming of yeah i mean none of none of the mad god imagery has come from a dream it's, it's just influenced by that kind of experience you know i was just looking for another way of um developing a narrative in a lot of ways like breaking a lot of the rules in that, that i have in my day job where in theatrical conventional theatrical cinema there are like so many rules about continuity and editing and how long you can let something play. And they're arbitrary rules. They're just a convention that uh, that's part of the nomenclature of the film language of the day. And there's a lot of other stuff that you can do with it. And so I, I chose a path that I just hadn't seen anybody else on because I was kind of curious about it. And you said that you were archiving the footage and that uh, you're fellow employees kind of egged you on to do it. Did you uh, lose all interest of it originally and they're the ones who pushed you? Or did you always have it in your back burner that you were going to do it? No, I totally thought it was dead. You know, I thought that after I had initially shot, you know, maybe five or six minutes, you know, 20 years ago on 35 millimeter film, uh, a number of contingent events, you know, entered into my life that, that took all my effort. You know, like I was saying, like raising kids and, and making the transition from photographic to digital imagery, you know, it took a, a tremendous amount of effort. And it just so happened that I was archiving the material and these guys stepped in and said, hey, we'll donate our time and, and help, help if you want to. I mean, their interest was more um, in, in a project that was about making things, you know, and, and using saws and hammers and glue and stuff like that to, you know, build pictures with. So you had to learn digital, correct? Or did you already have and kind of know how to do it from your years as a special effects artist? Yeah, yeah I, I, I am probably the stupidest person in my studio <laughs> in regard to, to digital technology. I mean, I have no interest in it, you know. Um, I... I it's too complicated, and there are too many things. And I don't personally like the way it looks, um, but there are a lot better people than me that do that stuff and, and can make stuff look better. And uh, 
so, I mean, just the, the, in the genesis of my career at a certain point, it just was happening about the time the digital took over, i kind of been kicked upstairs. So I, I didn't do any hands-on work anyway. It was more, you know, working with production teams, getting productions in place, going out and shooting, making sure all the material was shot right, and then, and then coming back and, and putting things in place for the crews to put it together. So how was the learning crew then for the guys who didn't know how to do the physical things on with saws and hammers and stop motion, did they get it really fast, or was it a, a long process where you became a teacher? Well, most of the people that I took, I made, I made a few mistakes early on because I would I would go give talks and people would uh, want to volunteer, and so I, initially I, I was pretty uh, open about who could come and do things. The thing is, you have to find people that are already at a certain skill level. Otherwise, it's just, I, mean, I have a lot of heavy lifting work that I need. I need, a, like, a lot of the same thing built. But you've got to be really careful doing that, you know, bringing people that don't, you know. At a certain point, I had to, like, back off from keeping the invitation open to people that had never worked with tools before because it was like giving razor blades to four-year-olds. <laughs> and, and, and I thought better of it. So everybody that, that's, that's come on has a, a certain skill set and, and ability. You know that I, I'm pretty aware of before they, they engage. One of the things I was really fascinated by in your presentation was you, you sort of you said that when when the guys in your team saw what you'd done, they were really excited about, like you just said, getting to work on that stuff. What do you think it is about um, models and all that sort of you know practical effects that? tend to be like a passion project for people. And I think it's true even on the audience's side where like a couple of years ago, uh, Duncan Jones's moon got a lot of praise because all the shots on the moon were all practical model effects. Um, is there something about uh, those visual effects being tactile that people just feel like they can, they understand what a labor of love it is more than they do, you know, CG animators are, are passionate and really talented too, but is there something where we can connect with it easier? Well, you know, um, I think there's a couple of things. I mean, one, you get for free. When you shoot an object, you're photographically documenting it as opposed to artificially reconstructing it. So there is, even though it's going through another medium, it, it's a representation of a real thing, not a, not a virtual thing. And by virtue of that fact, you know, depending upon how you build your thing, uh, let me back up. When you approach building things digitally, you have to work from a from a position of intention, and usually there's a lot of stuff. At least for theatrical films, you know, a, a big pre-design thing where you get like a whole lot of input, and then uh, some very specific moves to make the stuff quote unquote look real. But if you work with objects, you're they're already real. <laughs> so uh, it, it's just a matter of skill and finish uh, that, that you actually put on on the models to, to, to do things. And, and another aspect of working with things is that uh, as opposed to working, you know, from an intention towards an objective, uh, objects tell you a lot about what they want to be. 
So there's a different kind of a dialogue in, in terms of, of making things. You know, that's, that literally is a dialogue between the thing that you're making and, and the process that, that you're using. And a lot of things can change. I mean, most of the, you know, great ideas you get that come from accidents. And accidents you kind of have to blunder into. And it's hard to it's hard to fail into an accident when you're when you're doing CG digitally, yeah. Yeah. And I mean, in your in your film, Mad God, I mean, it's it's really it is feels like you can touch it, and it's so open for interpretation. I kept on uh, trying to put together what the Mad God meant, and when he was descending into uh, the pit or whatever it was, I saw that huge like statue. I kept on waiting for it to come out and get him, and. Then it's just building and building to uh, something else. And you said in your presentation you want people to think back to what they had. And you mentioned the character's name was the assassin, but it looked like he was rescuing the the monster in the when he opened the door and it looked at him. Is it all open for interpretation, or is there a, an yeah. ending in sight, or how? No, it, 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 it was constructed to work, you know, more like dreams work and keep it keep it very open to interpretation. You know. Uh, I had a, I gave a, a talk to some film students up in Boulder earlier in the year, and we did a screening and had a pretty big audience. And some of the people in the audience actually got irate that they asked me what it meant. And I <laughs> turned it around and said, what does it mean to you? And they thought I was messing with them. And it, yeah, they had like some specific ideas. And the, the way I, I tried to explain it was that... Um, I kind of look, I have like a 3D or a sculptural mind, and I, I, th I think in, in 3D in terms of things, but then I, I also think on a conceptual level, mentally, which are two totally different animals. And I, I looked at the object of, of Mad God as kind of like being a uh, receptacle or a vase or something like that, that people could put interpretations into and come out of it a lot you know writers do it all the time i mean the 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 person that writes the book is the reader you know yeah. and, and puts it together so it's like more using those kind of ideas or conventions sorry i didn't, I, didn't <laughs> I was waiting for me he's like <gasps> i thought he's gonna ask something really profound but then nothing came out <laughs> Um, so, uh, do you mind if we go back and talk about how you got into film and uh, what piqued your interest originally in film? I was just a kid that liked, you know, movies, you know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s and 80s. And, you know, I was a big fan of, you know, Ray Harryhausen's movies and all of that stuff. And just kind of did it and got to a certain level of, of proficiency and was able to meet uh, a, a number of, you know, people that mentored me that, you know, helped me, you know, on my way. And it just one thing led to the next. The other thing was nobody was doing this kind of stuff. So if, if you had a, a certain level of proficiency and, and people wanted, you know, a robot or a dinosaur or, or whatnot, there weren't that many places to go to. So it was easy to get hired. <laughs> Yeah, it's fascinating. You know, it's one of the stories you hear uh, a lot about Star Wars is that, you know, when all those, there was so much weight left on the effect shots. And, and at the time, it seems like nobody really knew um, what that was going to look like or how it was going to work or how to do it. Um, and yet you guys ended up, like, 
coming out with some of the most amazing stuff, you know, stuff that was inspiring to generations of kids. Well, the funny thing about that is, uh, you know, all of that stuff was based on on approaches that had been, you know, figured out in the 20s and 30s, right. you know, pretty much. And we were all, like, students of, of that kind of work, and the studios had forgotten about it. They had disbanded all their visual effects um, uh, departments. And, and slowly over the years, as... You know the studios have gone from these places that that were owned by the Jack Warners or the Mayors or you know uh, and have become more corporatized. You know the studios have have forgotten how to make movies. You know the, there's a changeover in the on the business side, and history is forgotten. So when a Lucas and a Spielberg come back and go like, hey, you know there was a component of all these things that were really successful that we can come back and put a new coat of paint on. I mean, there were certain tech, technological developments. I mean, I think that's the way to look at it, that nothing pretty much anywhere, and certainly in cinema, changes really until the technology changes, and then people, you know, put sound in their movies and color on their movies and, you know, 3D on their movies. And and, uh, and on, on the Star Wars movies, the, the uh, motion control technology was the single most, you know, important kind of a thing to start to get what was previously kind of chattery, jittery looking looking stuff for B-movies uh, to integrate more into live action for the what were now becoming the A-movies, movies that had like, you know, 10 and 20 million dollar budgets as opposed to the two or three million dollar budgets the low, low, lower budget Ray Harryhausen movies had. Do you, did you know at the time when you were working on Star Wars that it would be the phenomenon it became? Did you, did you feel a special thing? No, the way that we looked at it when we got hired onto it, we got hired uh, to do um, a number of inserts to replace material that was shot in England for the cantina. And that's where George realized that, that you know, we were doing stop motion as well. Um, it all kind of just flowed together magically, you know, somehow. You know, we just didn't... Um, it was it was um, as though no one had to try <laughs> to do anything. <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, and and George screened Star Wars for us, uh, you know, before we started working on these things, and we were a bit big fans of Th, you know, X, and you know, George was a really terrific director. And so we would screen the cantina scene or the chess scene, and we'd go like, wow, hey, that's exactly the kind of movie we always wanted to work on. And I really had fun doing all that stuff. And then we went to the cast and crew screening of it, and we were as bold over as anybody else when it was all together. Hmm. Really cool. And then you also won an Academy Award shortly after that for another Star Wars, correct? For the for Jedi, yeah. For Jedi, yeah. And... It, it, to me, that's so cool because I'm sitting with an Oscar winner, one. And two, um, <laughs> what do you think – was that a, a Oscar for Just Jedi or do you think it was kind of like they gave it to you because how great of a job you guys did throughout the whole trilogy? And um, Well, there are rules at the Academy about cool. that <laughs> stuff, you know. But the how I got that was, was you know, you're kind of on the right track. I mean, it was actually George um, worked with the Academy to get – one more guy on the, you know, guy did a lot of work for him. And so he said, you know, Phil should get an Oscar. Hmm. 
Well, only three people can get it. Well, what if four people can get it? <laughs> <laughs> and now eight people can get it. So. Yeah, yeah. Well, the teams are, you know, a whole lot more than twice as big as they were then. Um, so that's funny. You, you also worked on the, uh, the Temple of Doom, which is kind of the darker Indiana Jones, but it's actually... Uh, my favorite Indiana Jones movie. Um, and uh, what scenes did you work on there, and what were the challenges of working with Indiana? I, I just kind of came in as a, you know, to help Dennis Mirren out, who was supervising the show. So I, I helped him get the stuff together for the minecart chase and helped him uh, bring and, and shoot the thing where the guy's being lowered into the lava. Oh, sweet. That, that's the only <laughs> stuff I worked on. Um, what, uh, what is your most... Um, what, what are you most proud of in your career when you look back, or is it always something new that you're constantly working on? No, it's, you know, I, I think, you know, over, like, a career that, like, spans, like, 30 years, you just you look back on the, the you know, teams of people that you've worked with. Mm. So that's the most resonant, you know, of, you know, you had a great time making this thing, and it turned out not to be a piece of crap. <laughs> and when, when we went, uh, Kathy Kennedy invented, invited Dennis and I down once the first answer print was struck down to Amblin. And she screened Jurassic Park. It was just like the four of us. And when it was over, she goes like, what did you think? And we went like, it's not terrible. And she went like, that's exactly what I thought. I mean, because you're working with so many disparate parts, you know, that until like, you know, you get it to a certain point in the editorial that you just keep your fingers crossed. And there's so many things that I've worked on that you think are, are, is going to have potential and just, like, dies a terrible death. So also, because you work with so many things and you do just the visual effects, you have to rely, I guess, a lot on the editor and the director to bring it all together, or does your effects won't work correctly? Well, in, in, in the context that works, it's... Um, it's a um, partnership, you know. Everybody has their job, and everybody, the the best directors are the most inclusive ones, mm -hmm. and editors. I mean, everything, all costumers. You know, if everybody, you know, you, sometimes you get on bad crews where everybody's like territorial and wants to try and you know be in charge and have control issues. But generally, if you have like a a, a strong director that's very inclusive, you know, you're invited in to to play you know what would we, what would be good what would be fun hey what if we did this oh that's a good idea we should do that does that make working on something like mad god feel daunting or does it make it feel freeing that mad you never god's have? a totally different animal you yeah. know because it's not it's not uh driven by a schedule or a lot of money <laughs> <laughs> so that it kind of it takes it out of that sphere i mean it it it, can, it gets very stressful working on some of the other things because there's always a release date and a finite mm -hmm. amount of money and there's always always never enough money does it does it ever have do you ever have to compromise a vision because of a release date then on something they want to do or are you able to get what you want out of it yeah. well um Usually, by that point, for me, it's like the, the, the film has gone south by, you know, for reasons that are, you know, beyond your control. Uh, it's, it's not so much of a, of a uh, personal vision. You know, it's more of an architectonic process of, like, you do this, 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 you, do this, you, you build everything up. 
and you, you do it with a plan, um, and uh, sometimes that, that plan blows up, and then you have to like recalculate and figure out a different you know, way of going about doing it. Do you have a favorite kind of movie you like to work on? Because you've done so many different ones from RoboCop to Indiana Jones to Star Wars to Mad God. Um, do you have a certain vision you like to have? Do you like them darker? Do you like them to be a little more light? Uh, or is it just whatever is... I'm, I'm pretty omnivorous. You know, I'm, I'm kind of done, you know, with it. I don't, I don't like working on movies anymore that much. Boring. Really? So well, they've, you know, in, in the olden days when I worked with this guy, <laughs> you know, it was, um, it, you know, the, the way I look at it is, you know, or look back at it is, you know, there was all that stuff that led up to um, Jurassic Park and Starship Troopers. Mm. And then there's like this <clears throat> precipitous fall off where things just start started looking like crap. Yeah. And they still do. You know, I went to see um, I went to see Gravity last week, which was phenomenal, uh, and all of the trailers that they ran for it with uh, The Hobbit and Thor. I mean, it just all the visual effects stuff just looks like it was just like the same giant cauldron of oatmeal that had been mixed <laughs> together over and over and over. It's yeah. just it's just it's a corporatized process, you know, homogenized. You know, franchise bullshit for the masses, and it's it's tedious. Well, I think it feels like I mean, as an as an audience member, it feels like people have sort of forgotten that. You know, they think that CG can just do everything, and what what we end up getting the sense of is that like, when everything is CG, we know none of it is real. And what's really great about your Starship Troopers and your your uh, your uh, Dragon Hearts and things like that is that even when they started introducing CG, and and Jurassic Park is this way too, the close ups, the um, the places where we really needed detail, where we really needed things to be tactile, were all still practical. Um, Jurassic Park doesn't work because the CG is like, oh man, it was so impressive. It works because Steven Spielberg knew, like, okay, when when the T Rex gets close, I want it to have that that eyeball that moves the way that uh, ET's eye moves. Well, and, and, and can... Steven was a, a, a child that grew up loving that stuff, yeah. And so he knew. Same thing with Paul. He. They were students of film, and yeah. they, they genuinely loved all of that stuff. And the fish stinks from the head on down, as they say, you mm. know, and, and that makes, you know, everybody else's work, you know, up to a certain level. But when, you know, these days the studio arbitrarily hires the 24-year-old Argentinian video, you know, guy, you know, so they can beat him up, it's just, that's a fucked up process. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I agree, too, because uh, something like World War Z, where they have CGI zombies running around, I think is the most ridiculous thing I've ever seen, where something like Mad God, where I can, when I see him descending and those walls, I feel like I can touch him, I think is a more has a more profound effect on me than uh, CGI, like, puppets flying around the screen. I, you know, I've... I've... I didn't hate World War Z. Oh, I didn't. <laughs> no, I didn't either. I don't think the movie's bad. I just think that those parts make it bad. Yeah. Like, they just, they're unnecessary. Well, who is it? It was Siskel or Ebert said something like at, at some point in time, like, stop motion, uh, computer graphics uh, looks real but feels fake, and stop motion mm -hmm. miniature looks fake but feels real. Yeah. That kind of... I was just going to say, because, like... 
all that all that stuff in like in World War Z is really impressive, and you look at it and you go, oh yeah, yeah. As much as it may look real um, visually, I, I don't take anything home with me, you know. Whereas when something is you know, like something like Mad God, where I kind of want to just go back and pause it every now and then, just stare at the at the corners of the screen and see what I'm missing. Like that's the stuff that you carry. Well, with Well, we, the the times were different, so the the teams that you worked with were were much smaller. Hmm. So if we were reviewing shots, it would be like you know like on troopers it would be john and mark goldblatt and the ed- the editor and paul and me it'd be like four guys in a room going like here's what we should do and now it's not like that it gets like run up the food chain there's so many people that help you make your movie and, and generally the first thing that they say is uh we want it to be real which is my indication of, you know, meeting with somebody that doesn't have an education at all. <laughs> because I don't know if anybody bothered telling anybody before, but movies are pretend. <laughs> and it's, it's not about making things look real. It's making things look, you know, viscerally dynamic and really making them look good. And, you know, so I mean, that's always... And then, then the studios got into this thing, you know, where... Um, in the olden days, producers knew what visual effects were, but subsequently uh, they lost that skill and they would hire middle managers called visual effects supervisors mm. that work for the studios. And generally these people are, are middle managers. And there's a, this competition that it's got engendered over the last like you know, 15 or 20 years where when you go into a review, what the review is about is find what's wrong with the shot and it becomes a game. Mm. And so there's always something wrong with the shot because everything's subjective. And you can, you can look, micromanage it down to a pixel and that's, that's what can be wrong with the shot. And you know, uh, we can do like 500 takes you know, digitally now because we're redoing it. And it gets to a point where you know, these guys don't know how to manage people. If you manage artists, what you do is you encourage them. Mm. But if you are looking for what's wrong with what they do, what you get is like, okay, lady, where do you want your sofa? You want it over there? Or you want it over there? I don't give a fuck. You know, I'll put it wherever you want it. But it, it's uh, creative mismanagement. And that, that's part of the whole corporate modality. And, it, you know, the fish thinks from the head on down and messed it up. But in the, in, in the day, I was just talking to Dennis about this this particular problem was um, we never thought about what was wrong with the shots. We we only thought about hey, what will make it better. And you you also mentioned that in your presentation too that as you as a director for an artist, you tell them okay, they start here, they jump a fence, and then they land. And um, and you can tell in Mad God, it's just so cool. It's just so much to absorb. Because you're not giving them, you're not hampering them down. Well, and part of it is is your your own mental preservation. You know, you're an idiot if you have control issues and you have to micromanage everything. You know, it's just, you know, that just means you're psychotic on a certain level. You know, but if if you can still embrace that childlike thing, you know, what you're looking for, you're just looking to be amazed. Hmm. You know, and you know the 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 job of, of directing a lot of times is just you know, giving people guidelines and then wanting to be amazed by what they do and like to see it and go like, that is really cool. I would have never thought to do that in a million years. How'd you like uh, working with Paul Verhoeven? 
I really liked it a lot. No, cool. we got along really well. No, very cool. We, we had we had the Vulcan mind meld thing going, and uh, and and we'd be working on something, and we would like be drawing. Yeah. Okay. Well, the camera's over here, and the thing's over here, and this is over here, and this like, and, and then okay, fine. We know what we're doing. Yeah. We throw like the page down, and like the first AD would come up and go like, "You guys are fucking with us, right?" <laughs> it's just like a bunch of scribbles. So then I'll follow that up. Uh, so what's it like then working with Steven Spielberg? Is he? He seems like. Uh, I mean. This is probably just a fanboy me, but when I watch him, I'm like, oh, he's like my uncle when he tells me about how they made movies and stuff. Is, does he direct the same way, or is he a really uh, hardcore director and has shots planned out really well? Oh, the, the planning um, for both is just, I mean, it goes back to like Hitchcock kind of stuff. It's mm -hmm. like everything is planned, because everything has to get budgeted. So, you know, everything is, is totally, totally worked out. But, you know, things come up, you know, like on the set, you know, where it's like, Oh hey wow the lawyer in the script and the storyboard he just gets railroaded by the tyrannosaurus. What if we tilted the camera up and you got to see the tyrannosaurus eat the guy? And Steve will go like, "Yeah, let's shoot that." And Kathy will go like, "We're not budgeting for that." And it's like, "Well, we can shoot it." <laughs> and then it ends up in the movie. So. Oh man, oh, that's fun. So uh, so what's it like working with George Lucas? <laughs> Uh, it was great working with George. I mean, all of those guys were, you know, the, kind of my directorial ideals. I mean, they were, they were the ones I didn't know anything about working in movies, and and so they were kind of chronologically the first people that I met that were, you know, very astute, uh, you know, well-studied filmmakers, and you know, uh, a, a lot of it when things work, you you do have this kind of you know telepathy. And there, there's a surprisingly little amount of actual discussion about how deep things are. It's, it's like you kind of—it's like working in an ensemble. You know, you're just you're playing off of other people, and you know, know where they're, you know, how far away you are from them, or how close you can get. And so they—they they were all, you know, uh, very good memories. Very cool. And you also directed a few films. Did you take, is it easy to go from visual effects to directing? Because directing obviously is such a visual medium as well and a profession. Or did you have to rethink how you did things as well? You know, I, I didn't. I, I, I never really imagined myself as a director. I, I had this other fantasy of being a filmmaker that wasn't necessarily a director. Um, but I, I, you know, I tried to get a bunch of things going. And I think John made me direct something. Because I think he was tired of listening to me bellyache about directors, <laughs> and it was it was a really great experience. I, I had I had a lot of fun doing it, and nothing ever really came of it. But it's it's uh, it's a it's a really tough tough racket to be in. And I have a there's a, up at my local market, there was a kid that was going to film school, and. He asked me what he thought he should major in. I'm like, you don't know? I mean, what? you should know the answer to that question. <laughs> I can't tell you. And he said, well, I, I was interested. I was thinking maybe about directing. Can you give me advice about directing? And I'm like, hell, yeah, I can give you advice about directing. It's like, here's what you do. You stay working in this store for another three or four years. You buy yourself three really nice suits. 
and you move to either Sacramento or Washington, D.C., you get your job as like, um, what do they call them, an intern or a Monica Lewinsky type of a thing. Yeah. And, and you work in that milieu for three years. During that three years, you can only eat cat food. <laughs> That's all you can eat is cat food. But if you make it to the end of that first three-year period, you have to start lacing into the cat food human feces <laughs> until the, at the end of that third-year period, you, if, if you're able to eat an entire human turd, then you could be a director <laughs> in Hollywood. And I tell that to all my director friends, they go, fucking hey, Boba. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Would you disagree? <laughs> uh, for those of you listening at home, producer John Davis just walked into our set, and I'm trying not to freak out right now. <laughs> I'm staying focused. Focused. <sighs> so yeah. Mad God Part 2 is being funded on Kickstarter, correct? It will be. I haven't started one yet. And did you have a timetable for that, or is it just whenever you get around to it? No, I'm, I'm hoping to have that done by the end of next year, and then, then Chapter 3 by the end of the following year. And is uh, maybe sooner. Is uh, how long is it before Mad God Part One is completely finished? Uh, November, December. November, December. And is there a place we're going to be able to watch it around that time, or how are we going to? It'll be in a bunch of film festivals and um, a bunch of people that partic participated in the Kickstarter get get Blu-rays of it. And then uh, I'm looking at um, talking to different people about theatrical distribution and things like that. How many parts do you think it's going to be? I have no idea. Okay. That's what I expected. <laughs> Very cool. Well, what I'm kind of thinking of at the moment is I've got these three chapters that, that are, are pretty intact. But in some ways, like the way I'm thinking about it is a little bit like I don't know what I'm talking about because I never played video games. But the structure is such that I've got places where I can go into the, the existing narrative like with a wedge and like open it up and and the thing will still play so it, it it'll come down to when things start looking crappy and i run out, out of ideas and then i'll stop i when uh you had a little teaser for what's happening next and the monster where you're showing the behind the scenes of it how long did it take to build that monster uh it took a long time because <laughs> i you know like most things i well, what, yeah, that, that is a little bit interesting because it was like, um, how do you make a monster? Hmm. You know, and you look at a lot of the stuff that's out there right now of people that that design monsters, and it's it's pretty much kind of sort of the same thing. But you know, what what is evocatively a, a you know a, a horror that comes from your unconscious? And so I tried a whole bunch of things. You know, and a bunch of things didn't work, and I just kept building it and tearing it down and building it and tearing it down. Used a bunch of conventional materials and didn't like how it worked, and ended up just stumbling across. I think what I ended up using is mostly uh, insulation foam for like doors, houses. I just eventually stumbled on the right material until things started looking right. I, I couldn't do that. <laughs> <laughs> how many wires were on that? Monster, I can't. I, I, it was mind blowing when I, I was watching. I never counted. You, you know, again, I don't think. You know, it's mm -hmm. just a matter of getting stuff together. And I, you know, this look like it'll work. This could work, and you you build it up and you get stuff put together and 
take it down and put it back together. And just go back and forth and back and forth and back and forth until like, at a certain point you go like, I'm done. And how many frames does it take for like the movements for that monster too? Because it was coming like right at the assassin and he was moving too. I, I, I guess you just told me you don't count, but like it's just well, uh, it, it, a complicated shot like that. There were like five guys that were working on it. Wow. So there was Chuck Duke was animating the foreground guy, Tom Gibbons, and, uh, who's a Chuck and Tom are really great stop motion animators that go back a long time. Then then we have like a, a kid that that was uh, one of the guys was teaching that was going to a local college did some other stuff, and there was another guy in the back. So. Huh. And that has to be super complicated, too, because the character in the front has to move at the same time as the one in the back, correct? Or it doesn't match up. Is that a challenging thing to do when you're filming, and when you go back and look at it, you realize you missed something? No, because you stay stay in touch. I mean, again, it's, it's, like, it's like doing a dance in, like, super slow time. Uh, and so you've kind of worked out what you're, what you're going to do in terms of the choreography, and then as you come, you know, closer and closer and closer together to the contact, you're, you're in a lot more contact with each other. You know, like in 10 frames, I'm going to be here, you know, 12 frames here. And so you can help anticipate. That's so cool. Mm-hmm. Well, Mr. Tippett, thank you for stopping by and talking to us. And thank you for showing Mad God. Yeah, uh, it's awesome. really awesome. I'm cool. so excited to yeah. see more of it. And so make sure you check out Kickstarter so you can chip in on Chapter 2. Is there a place we can go online right now and check out your other work? Uh, just Tip Studio website. Yeah. Cool. Jupiter Studio website. Cool. Thank no. you so much. Okay. Yeah, Taking time. Great. We really Thank appreciate you. it. My pleasure. Man, I was such a, a young pup back then. Your voice was so much higher back then. I know. I said, oh, Mr. Tippett, oh, would you... Uh... <laughs> Sound like what's his name from the Apple Dumpling Gang? <laughs> Don Knotts. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, you see, back in my day, the ghost would chase you. Um, I don't know where that. I don't know what that even comes from. But uh, yeah, probably Mr. Checker. <laughs> yeah, that's what I think. I think I was thinking of. Yeah. Um, but thank you, uh, Mr. Tipper, for sitting down with us. That I mean, that I, I always remember that because I love the setup. Remember when they used to set us up in like the parlor there, and people would come down and talk to us, and that's how we met the guys who made the film The Battery. Telluride Horror Show is really fun. If you have the opportunity to go, you should definitely go. It's beautiful up there. See a lot of cool films. But now we're going to get into the actual film that's now nine years later. Oh, my God. Brad, do you recommend Mad God? Only if you're into high art. Uh, it's, it's, uh, it's not a narrative that you sit down and you follow the plot from beginning to end. It's, uh, it's really a, just like a solid art piece. Uh, it's I mean, I recommend it, but it, it's definitely an acquired taste because it's it's not a a plot that you follow. It's just a, it's like a, a mood you sit in. True, Zach. Oh uh, yeah, I do. It's um, it's it's nice to watch a piece of pure cinema kind of unfold where there's no dialogue. You're running off of purely a visual spectrum, and uh, to watch stop anim- stop motion animation by one of its masters is quite a treat. So I mean, if you've got Shutter, you can watch it instantly. So. I'm always afraid when people come on our show and they spend time with us and then I have to review the movie and be a critic. And I, it's okay. Um, visually, it's very cool. Um, but that's about all it did for me. And I think there's too much shitting in mouth. But uh, here's the trailer for Mad God.
So Mad God supposedly follows an assassin who's going down through the depths of hell. I don't know what it is. I think it's like a decayed world. Like it's like a world that's kind of just gone awry. Layers and layers of like just civilization's worst impulses. Yeah, and then some gnomes going. And they get stepped. I guess he kills those guys. Yeah, he does. I guess that's what he's assassinating. Um, but I mean, it looks cool. He kind of reminded me of the uh, slasher from My Bloody Valentine, and because he even had that. Uh, it, it's it, it almost feels like it's you're trying to do like a journey to the descent of the earth type of yeah vibe mixed in with this. It feels like there's a societal commentary, but it's like it's vague in the same way that Metropolis can be vague. You know? Yeah, I, I guess I agree. I mean, it's it's a it's I would pe- tell people to go see it one because as far as art wise, it's beautiful. Yeah, that's the thing. Like you will want to look at this movie, yeah. whether or not you want to rewatch it. I guess. Yeah, I, that's a pure taste thing. So I guess I would recommend it if you want to see artists at the top of their game kind of having free reign to do whatever the hell they want yeah um i mean the loose plot too I, what i picked up is this mad god doctor guy is creating these dudes to go in there and yeah it just write the world i guess write, i don't know write the world but they see seemingly the ending suggests that they always kind of fail or yeah like and there's because there's thousands of them mm-hmm. um and then there is the, like the monsters look cool uh there is shitting into the mouth of one and i think the worst part is you could hear it gulping the shit <laughs> Yeah, it's like a lot of good sound design. There's, yes, there is this part too that I appreciate about just like it's not just stop motion puppetry. Like at one point you have a surgeon performing surgery on one of the assassins. Yeah, and you are watching live actors, but their frames are separated out. It's like it's almost kind of like the feel that you have from Spider-Man into the Spider-Verse, like that stilted animation. Yeah, like that smoothing. This one, you kind of get to see the process of animation at work, even with live-action figures. Yeah, the artistry is amazing. I mean, the, the work they put into it, I, I could... And you can see why it took so long to make. I mean, there's so much stop-motion. I mean, 90% of the film is stop-motion, so... Yeah. I mean, yeah. And it, some of the stuff is really grotesque. I could do without the baby crying for 10 minutes. Yeah. That was a little grating. Mm-hmm. But Maybe but on it, purpose, for all we know. Oh, yeah, I mean, I'm sure it is. I mean, there has to be a reason why. It's, it's um, almost like I'd want to rewatch it in sh- on Shutter now, just so that I can have the ability to pause and go back, sure, and see if I can pick up on it. Because like we, we saw this at eleven fifteen at night, not the best way to really <laughs> ingest an art film like this at eleven o'clock at night. Yeah, I mean, luckily Brad saw it beforehand because he was woken up a couple times by the waiter at uh, yeah. the Alamo. <laughs> I, it's been a busy week, so yeah, I passed that a couple times. Not a commentary on the film. Just like I was physically, my body <laughs> yeah. was shutting down. But luckily, I saw it at the Sea Film Center weeks ago, and you can hear more of my thoughts on that recording. So you can. But I also have another treat for our listeners. You're like, oh man, this is a short episode. It's not. Uh, here right now is our interview with the great Georges Genty, who joined us on the creator stage at Denver Fan Expo to talk about his career and some of my favorite pieces he's done throughout his career. All right. Good morning, Denver, Colorado. If you're within the sound of my voice, this is the creator stage. It is the heart and soul of the content creator community all weekend long. We've got an army of podcasters, YouTubers, content creators who are going to be broadcasting their show right here from Fan Expo, kicking things off on what I think is going to be the best day of our consecutive lives on the stage right now for over 10 years and more than 500 episodes 
Denver's Real Nerds Podcast has gone to a new movie each week and podcasted their experiences to the world, that and a whole lot more. Denver, huge round of applause right now for the Real Nerds Podcast. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you. you guys Thanks for best. that intro. <laughs> no, um, no, please sit, sit. Yeah, please. Really. Whoa, 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 back up. Whoa, they're, they're There's throwing, seats for everybody, guys. They're, they're throwing their clothes at us. This is like a Motley Crue concert. Uh, I'm Ryan. With me is Brad. Hey. And Zach. Hello. But we're really here with a comic book legend. A comic book legend, Denver. So you should come and be here at the creator stage. Legends report to the pavilion for the real nerds. <laughs> yes. Uh, we are sitting with comic book artist extraordinaire, Georges Genty. Thank you, sir, for being on our show. You are welcome. And I, I'm here up until the real legend shows up. No, so you'll have to deal with me. He is a legend. Um, you have been illustrating, drawing comics for how long now? Uh, professionally, uh, over 25 years. Wow. I hate that it dates me like that, but yes. <laughs> well, I, I was thinking it really dates us, too, because uh, insider baseball here, uh, George's was one of our first celebrity guests we've ever had. Oh, yeah? Ten years really? ago. <laughs> yeah. And it's uh, been a treat. Every time you're here, you sit down with us and you regale us with wonderful stories. And I really appreciate your time today on the busiest day of the well, con. I, I am nothing if not regaling. Oh, you know, I was going to say it, and I did. Um, so I thought it'd be fun to kind of go through your career. And I also, on the screens out here, you can see I've pulled some of my favorite covers or uh. artwork you've done. Um, and pray tell, are we going to speak on these covers? We are. So, <laughs> this is your life. This is your life. So, sorry, I, he's not Ralph Edwards. <laughs> I, like many people, loved a show called Buffy the Vampire Slayer. And when it ended, I thought it was a fitting end, but I always wanted more. And well, that's when you watched Angel and got the rest I, of it. Then I got Angel, and then it ended with them running towards a demon. I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. And um, wanting to slay the dragon or something. Exactly. But lo and behold, a few years later, my local comic shop had Buffy the Vampire Slayer season eight uh, coming out in comic book form. Uh, can you take us through the beginning genesis of that project? Uh, sure, very quickly, because it, it really was a longer process than it, it should have been. But uh, essentially, Joss Whedon, who, of course, is a big comic book fan, he, a couple of years, Buffy went off the air in 2007, and a couple of years after that, I'm sorry, yeah, 2007, was it? Three. No, 2003. Three. Yeah. Oh, I, I did it in 2007. Yes. <laughs> it's been so long, I don't even remember. So it goes off the air, and a few years later, Joss really has that pang for wanting to do more Buffy. And he felt, well, it's never going to be another TV show, but it could conceivably be a comic book. And I believe he was doing uh, the, uh, what was he, the X-Men. He was doing an X-Men at the yeah, time. Yeah, the, the X-Men one with Kitty Pride and Colossus. Right, right. And he thought, man, this would be a really great way to redo some more Buffy or revisit that whole thing. So he did it, and Dark Horse, of course, was already publishing it. And he was just very into it. It would took to finding an artist. He didn't know me, but the way serendipity works, he was actually reading a book that I was doing at the time called uh, The American Way. And when called to the editor, he said, well, who are we going to get to draw this? Joss says, I don't know this guy, but I really like this book. Can we maybe get him? And the guy, uh, Scott Alley, who was the editor for Buffy the Vampire Slayer, goes and reaches out to me and asks me, of course, hey, would you like to do this book? And 
I, of course, thought he was joking because whoever gets that call that says, hey, Joss Whedon really loves your work, he wants you to work on this book. And after a few go-arounds um, of me not believing Scott, I, t I uh, charged him to say, well, if it's real, then have Joss get in touch with me. That's bold. Uh, that was very bold. And the very next email, it was Joss Whedon saying, hi, I'm really Joss. I really want you to work. And the next following email was me eating a lot of humble pie and apologizing and, of course, accepting the gig, which have, you know, changed my career. Yeah, because I'm kind of embarrassed. I didn't. I knew of your work because I collect comics for so long. Mm -hmm. But I'll never forget, um, if you look on the screens, um, when Buffy was released, they had what they call the A cover. And this was, they really didn't do this as much back then. But Dark Horse was a little more uh, forward thinking. This. They used to do photo covers and then a, an art, artist one. Right. And the original uh, cover was great. But there's something about this cover of Buffy almost being eaten by a demon and <laughs> holding the mouth open that really grabbed me. And well, yeah, right off the bat, Joss wanted to show something that he could never have done on the TV show. And while there were a plethora of demons on the show, they were all pretty much of human size. I mean, there were a few that were obviously CGI'd, but this was Joss's intent, at least insofar as he was telling me, I really want this to look like we have an unlimited budget. So make these monsters big, make them menacing, make them threatening. And, uh, and that's pretty much what I came up with. In my naivete, though, <laughs> on this cover still stands a, um, an Easter egg that a lot of people don't know. But uh, in my naivete, Joss was very big on not mixing the world of Firefly and the world of Buffy together. I didn't know this when I did this cover. So I thought, hey, wouldn't it be cool if Buffy was wearing a T-shirt from Serenity? And I don't know how it got past Joss, because when we talked about it later, he was like, yeah, had I seen that, that would have never flown. Uh, but to this day, that was the one mashup that I've ever done that had to do with Firefly, a book which I later did as well, and Buffy the Vampire Slayer. So, yeah, I, when I saw this on the shelf, I immediately went to my comic store and I changed my poll from the A cover to all of your <laughs> covers, because just, I mean, the... You can tell just by your art how much he's struggling to fight, and it just looks badass. Right, and no disregard to uh, to the A covers. Those no, are no, great, no. great They're covers. They're great, too. But there's something about traditional comic art that grabs me. Yeah. And I think that's just me being a comic book fan for as long as I have been one, that the pencil and the ink and then the colors just grab me more than digital yeah. stuff. And I think that's kind of how they wanted to do that. Joe Chen, who did the regular covers, had a more realistic style. And uh, Dark Horse felt that a lot of people who are going to read Buffy have probably never read comic books before. So they wanted to say, why don't we appease them by having a more realistic uh, cover and then more a classic cover for the people who actually collect comic books. So that, that's me. <laughs> um, the, the next one is an issue you actually did not draw the interiors for. No, yeah. But I actually think is one of the best single issues I've ever read. It is, yeah. Um, it's called The Chain. However, your cover is a little spoilerish if you read it, <laughs> but what it conveys is awesome. Yeah, there's a great backstory to that. I mean, I was doing this with a, um, a flag, Montgomery Flags. Uh, I want you, uh, the um, service propaganda poster of many, many years ago. 
And in it, Joss okayed it, and we said, hey, yeah, let's put the other girl in front, and we're going to go with the, uh, the quote, I want you, because that's what's in the actual poster from Flag. And I was like, Joss, maybe there's something more, because as it stands, she's not being enlisted into the military. So what, what do you think? May, should we say something else, or should we do something else? And he said, give me a minute. And he, he goes away, and I, I get an email maybe two hours later, and he's like, all right, this is what we're going to do. We're going to keep the I want you, but below that, put I want you to be strong. And that just solidified anybody who knows anything about Slayers. That's really one of their uh, uh, codes of ethics is to be strong. And that just, to me, I said, this is why you are who you are, because I would have never come up with that, and I don't know anybody who else would have come up with something like that. And that just is a testament to his genius, I thought. Because the, 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 the story is, and I, I mean, I guess it's been out for 15 years. I can spoil yeah, it. a little bit. Um, it's, they, they have a bunch of slayers. They, at the end of Buffy, she gave all potential slayers a slayer power. And in this, you're following someone who you believe is Buffy. Mm-hmm. And at the end, she dies. Yeah. And it, so it turns this really dark turn and about the sacrifice that they make. And that just emphasizes, I want you to be strong. Because who, who, in a very funny way, in an Angel episode called Girl Interrupted, there are uh, various Buffies that are, are roaming around the world. And it is made mention of this girl. Of course, this is years before this book comes out. But she is made mention of many, many years before. And this is just sort of a coming-to-fruition thing. that you, If you've been around for many, many years, you, you got that sort of ending for her. So you also worked with more than one writer on this run, and one I didn't put in here, but Jeff Loeb did like a oh, yeah. cartoon style, yeah. which you did a great cover for, too. Well, because Jeff Loeb was supposed to do the animated Buffy series when that was supposed to come out originally, and he had already written that episode and then converted it into the comic book and used, if I'm not mistaken, one of the artists who was supposed to illustrate the animation. Very cool. And if anybody out there is walking by and is like, I have a question for Georges, please just stop, raise your hand, and, and yell at us. Right. Could you not talk so loud? Yeah, Thank please, you. please, <laughs> please. Everybody out there, everybody, please. Uh, this next one I, I really love because, in a way, um, it's you homaging and also taking from – I want it's Lichtenstein, right? Yeah, Lichtenstein. Yeah. yeah who, he's a German. Who took previously produced comic book – Mm-hmm. Art and made it pop art. Right. So it's I call it licked and stolen, <laughs> and so I like that you kind of reclaimed it on this. Right. Yeah. I was. I'm in my career, and and I collect comics also, and I always loved it when somebody did some sort of a homage cover. It didn't necessarily have to be of another artist or whatever, but when it was like a movie homage or something like that, I always thought, wow, that's really clever. And I, I was beside myself, and I was very happy that Joss was okay with it, but I was beside myself to put it up or make it happen anytime I could or where I thought it was appropriate. And in this case, I, I, we could argue that maybe I, I did it a little too much in the run of Season 8, but I look back fondly on those covers, and I, I haven't had one complaint. Anybody who recognizes what the cover is has never really complained, oh, my God, you did too many of them. So I was very happy to include a wide range of influences, and this one being Liechtenstein, uh, to illustrate the heartbreak. Because literally in the story, this is the first time Buffy finds that Xander and Dawn have been seeing each other. 
and, and, it, and it grows from there. Um, but I think it's what's really cool about the covers that you pay homage to is you recognize it immediately. Yeah. You know, yeah. I, I, uh, I obviously I didn't include them all in here, but I also, you have a Hobgoblin one. Yes. And uh, you have an X-Men one. Actually, you have two. Yeah. You have the one where she's walking away with just Cyclops. Yes, Cyclops leaving the X-Men. Yeah. yeah. And also, I want to point to the, the lettering and the font on here. So were you aware of where they were going to put that and when you laid this out? Well, that was another big thing for me. I, I'm a completist. When I look at a cover, I like to see the whole thing. And, and honestly, I loved it when they would do the word balloons on the actual page. So most of those uh, logos I, I actually did by hand. Did you really? Yeah. Yeah. See? I did the, the Nick Fury one oh, by hand. Sweet. and uh, Oh, a bunch of them. Yeah. See, after 10 years, I still learned something new. <laughs> and if you're wondering why he's a legend, because he knows this stuff. and he can. Because, I mean, do you have that memory recall when you read a, a script and you go, you know what? I can pull this uh, Lichten stolen cover and I can reclaim it for comic book people. And it fits for this particular no, story. I mean, I'm no Mozart. I, I have a lot of <laughs> reference books, and I just got to go through books. Or, or I guess nowadays people go through the Internet. But I do have in my studio, I have a lot of books. And when something, when you get the germ of an idea, it sort of points you in a direction, and you go down this rabbit hole, and usually that's where it leads me. Because you even got, like, the Romita-ness of it yeah, that yeah. I, I adore. Mm -hmm. um, John Romita, for all those comic book people out there. Uh, senior, by the way. The senior, correct. Yeah. Uh, the next one, I think people will recognize immediately. Um, Action Comics number one is maybe the most iconic cover of all time. Probably. Uh, that Amazing Fantasy 15. Um, but this uh, is definitely an homage to that. Yes, and it was because it's probably the most iconic cover in comics that I, I, I felt remiss if we didn't at least attempt to put it in there at some point. And this was a good place to do it because in this storyline, Buffy actually gets her strength. She gets more strength than a Slayer is supposed to have. And to illustrate that, um, funny, funny enough, Joss and I had a conversation. When I first took on Buffy, I asked him, well, how strong is she? Can, you know, can she lift up a building? Can she fly, you know, bounds? And, and he's like, no, she's not Superman strength, but she's more Spider-Man strength. And Spider-Man could lift up a car, but he probably couldn't throw it very far. And I thought, well, given our day and age, and now that Buffy's a little bit stronger, maybe lifting up a car wouldn't be as dramatic. So I thought, well, maybe lifting up a locomotive, because now she is faster than a locomotive. <laughs> um, I thought it was a really good idea. And those colors in her dress are intentional because we wanted to keep the red, blue, and yellow of Superman. Even to the extent of her chest, her blouse has a little V uh, diamond in it. And is that when you work with the colorist to let them know that? Yeah, that was something I, I, I wanted to intend because I did her, she's wearing a jacket and the jacket I wanted to superimpose as a cape. I couldn't put a cape on her, of course, because then that would look stupid. <laughs> uh, and then with the, with the people surrounding her, I just sort of, Joss Wheaton, before he cut his hair off, I put him in there and I put the editor, Scott Alley, and I thought for good measure, you know, we have to keep the race relations good on good terms. <laughs> I put myself in there too. <laughs> So those three people have actual stakes in that book, creative-wise. And there's a, the, the, you know, 
Buffy in Action Comics font. And in Action Comics, yes. That one that was done by the uh, by the company. I didn't I didn't do that one by hand. I <laughs> I mentioned it, but it just seemed obvious too to do it in uh, in that font. Heck yeah! The next one is a comic I actually stumbled across on accident because mm. um, I, I one of my favorite things is to go to a comic store and just flip through comics. And again, you'd think I'd you know know all your stuff, but what I love about your work and why I picked this one is as I was flipping through Batwoman, I saw this and I immediately knew it was you. Oh yeah? Yeah. Really? Yeah. Um, so take us through the process of designing this because obviously Clayface is grabbing her. Yeah, this was at a point in Batwoman's career or in, in this, the series of the book where they were trying to pair her up in a group setting. I don't know if the sales or what was going on exactly, but they wanted her to be in a group. And I cannot for the life of me remember now what that group was supposed to be called. But it was supposed to be Clayface, uh, her sister, whose name escapes me, um, and a couple of other guys. Uh, Rag- Ragman, yep. I think. And yep. I'm trying to see who else is in there. Um, well, a bunch of people, sort of the, <laughs> the ragtag team is how they were thinking of it, of which Batwoman was going to be the leader of, the reluctant leader, because she is a, a military, paramilitary, and she very much likes working alone. Uh, and this was going to be the crux of the series, how these deviants can actually get along and work together. And that was, yeah, that was a cover I thought was really good. I actually got to ink that cover, too, which I didn't get to do oh, a whole nice. lot. You know, and I, I love your Batwoman run because I think she started finding the voice for the character yeah, around then. Yeah, I, I centered a lot more on Bat, on the woman rather than the Bat in this case because being a, a lesbian and a former uh, Marine, I thought that's so much more interesting. Yes, I mean, it's nice to see her running around in costume, but that's where people are going to be hooked on. And I think that's a tribute to your work, too, because it's shown in a superhero comic here. But if you look at something like The American Way or something you did last year, two years ago, The Shadow Doctor. Oh, yeah. Which is a true story, but there's no superheroes in it. But you're telling a story that is compelling about... Gangster's Doctor, <laughs> and it, the, it, it's just a stunning piece of work. And I think that's why your Batwoman run stands out to me, is because you stripped her of, per se, the the costume, and let's explore her as she is. Yeah, I had a lot of fun doing that. I must admit, I wasn't on it long enough to really find. You know, I think everybody who does a book, you sort of, I think anything you do that it's consecutive. You, it takes a while for you to find your groove, like you're, you know, where you get comfortable with, just like a marriage. You know, when you just first married, you're sort of still feeling each other out. And that was me with Batwoman. I was really trying to feel out the character. And I, regrettably, I don't think I was on her long enough to really have gotten to know her, to do her, you know, more of a subliminal thing. Do you think that as you've, even though you're away from the property now, do you still like work on the character on your own time and find your groove within that? I, I still think about the character, but I don't necessarily work on it because, of course, other creators have now come and done whatever they do. So I don't like to sort of stay stuck in a certain area. Right. But right. I do feel if I'm leafing through a comic sometimes, whether or not they've gotten it right, yeah. in my opinion, or whether they're like, no, that's, a, that's not a direction I would have gone in. You still have the ability to play that what-if game for yourself, <laughs> which is nice. <laughs> 
I do. I mean, I like the character. I, I've liked most every character I've done, Bishop and Gambit and all those guys, I still think of fondly and really miss doing the book. I'm very thankful to never really have been on a book that I just hated and wanted to do it for the money and just get it done and get it out. So I've been very passionate about most of the characters I've done. Well, and your Bishop run was, like, when he started transitioning too, I think, from kind of a side character yeah. to, hey, this is a really cool mutant that yeah. we can have. Yeah, well, he really started to transition from a, an Arnold Schwarzenegger Terminator character into something that really became his own. Like, who is this guy? This, because for so long, I don't think he even had a first name. Yep. <laughs> he was just that background character that was, you know, from the Terminator type of a thing. And, yeah, when, when we started to do it, unfortunately... The, the tale that was told was much more of a Lord of the Rings tale, and I don't think it centered too much on Bishop himself. But you could definitely see that there were pangs of his individuality coming through, and I really tried to emphasize that in, in the way he dressed and the way he stood and the way he just was looking. It may not be, have been in the script, but it was something I was conscious of as I was drawing it. You know, I agree 100% because when I think of Bishop, I used to collect comic book cards and he was always like running and had a gun shooting and with his uh, mouth open with and his mean. mouth open and you gave you you'd stripped him kind of of that and gave him yeah the only thing i regret i have to tell you the only thing i regret about that book that i did that i shouldn't have done was i should have given him eyeballs i kept his eyes white because i was always every time i saw him he never had yeah. pupils and i i should have given him pupils because of course nothing is as expressive as the eyes and I, I really feel like I've missed out on an opportunity to be more expressive with that character by giving him pupils. Uh, the next thing I have up is something that's not out yet. Oh. Um, so, uh, everybody calm down. It'll be out soon, okay? Is this the way? This is the way. Um, you are drawing the adaptation of The Mandalorian. Yes. Season one. Yes. And I can tell right away it's what I love about your work. I have spaceships. <laughs> I have likenesses of Carl Weathers, but in comic book style. Uh -huh. And then the Mandalorian looks badass in it. I, th I think you've captured it well. Yeah, we are doing the adaptions from the Disney Plus show. And I had a very big question when they first asked me to. And I was curious if they just wanted screen captures of the episodes because that's not really me. I thought, this is great, and I love these adaptions because as a comic book fan, I loved you know, the Star Wars adaptions or the, you know, the Raiders of the Lost Ark adaptions or any of those really, the Alien adaption, any of those really good adaptions. And I thought, if we want to make it look like a comic book, then I'm in. But if all you guys wanted were screen caps, then I would have passed on it. And they were like, no, I mean, the key scenes, let's try to keep it as accurate as possible. But essentially, yes, bring... The Mandalorian into the comic book world. Don't bring the comic book into the TV episode, if that makes sense. I love hearing that. And how did you land this job? As they see your Serenity book and go, this guy can draw spaceships. No, I have no clue. <laughs> Honestly, I was I was doing um, some fill-in issues to the Star Wars High Republic uh, for Marvel already, and I I really do believe in serendipity. I hate to say it because. You know, people think you're so romantic or it's just it's a non-answer, but it really is being in the right place at the right time, knowing when your moment is going to come. And quite frankly, I think I did a good enough job filling in on the High Republic 
where they were looking at the powers that be at Marvel were looking at saying, hey, we need this. We've got a schedule, but we need somebody who's not going to flake out. And lo and behold, they came to me, I assume. Not so much that I'm such a great artist, but they knew that I could actually get the job done. And, and something like this, though, you, I, you told me yesterday that it's 30 pages, so it's eight pages longer. Yes, oversized. Well, Marvel Comics now are 20 pages oh, wow. on an average. And, yeah, so it's about 10 pages more per book on this series. So you already get more value for it. And, but did Serenity help you with this in, in understanding space and drawing ships? Or are the worlds so different that it's irrelevant? Um, no, but I, I see the similarities, and you're right on that level. Uh, doing Serenity maybe consciously didn't help me, but unconsciously probably. It's a, it's a very telling thing when you have to design for space. Because, of course, space is space. It's just a big black void. And in that, you have to get creative. And I think I did a lot of my creativity in Serenity that I did bring to Star Wars, uh, to The Mandalorian. But funny enough, a lot of it has been on planets. So we haven't really seen a ton of the Falcon Crest in space. But when we do, I do, if, when the book comes out... I do try to keep those pages very unified to let you know that this is space and this is a situation, this is a scene that's happening in space in a creative way. And are, have you drawn all the issues already? I am starting issue six. It wow. is now July 1st or whatever we are now. And I am on Second. the sixth issue. Seventh. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. So you're just waiting for it to come out and i know it keeps on getting delayed yeah uh i'm hoping that's a good thing that there's yeah. so much anticipation they want to hold off and just blow their wad <laughs> all at once <laughs> well i blame I, I blame the new uh shipping company on it oh is that it i, I yeah. have no idea on that because I, I the the previews have had the same comics in it for a couple months oh really yeah so i think they're having an, an issue because they switched to penguin random house and went away from uh, previews or diamonds. Gotcha, gotcha. And so um, I, I, I want to say that's it. Or they're ordering so many that they had to print more. I want to go with that one. I, 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 I like that one, yeah. too. Although, it really, as a fan, too, it, it is such a humbling thing because a lot of what I'm doing, oh, you know, I get to draw Cara Dune. I get to draw Fennec Shand. I get to draw, you know, uh, Grief and all these other characters that I'm a big fan of the TV show as well. So when we get to those episodes, I'm always so excited and I'm, I'm giddy looking for reference of those characters. And on The Mandalorian, his helmet looks awesome how you draw it. Because that, to me, is really important in the character. Yeah, that has been the hardest thing, too. Because you have to make it look cool all the time, right? Well, not even that so much. <laughs> but, I mean, take this into consideration. In the script, it says the Mandalorian is, is looking at him angrily. <laughs> the Mandalorian is looking at him passively. The Mandalorian is rolling his eyes. It's the same image every time because there is no expression. And, of course, that's the coolness of his, you know, uh, cowboy with no name type essence. But it has been a challenge to try and integrate what he's feeling with just the mask. So how do you do that? Do you do it in his body posture? Uh, I don't know because sure. I'm not an artist because I'm not, <laughs> I'm not talented. Sure. Uh, I'll go with that one. I try, actually, I do try to use angles. Like, they're in, in storytelling, certain angles will tell a certain story. Like, from a high above angle, it seems very detached. Or when you're looking at something from a low angle, it may seem a little more ominous. And those things I've tried to incorporate when it's appropriate. 
But, yeah, it's been very difficult because there is no facial expression, and that's what we as human beings identify with. We don't ident- that's why we don't identify with animals unless they're anthropomorphic because they're not doing anything. So in this case, I've tried very hard. Um, but, I mean, the character speaks for himself. So, uh, Anybody who just sat down have any questions for Comic Legend? Anyone? Bueller? Bueller? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Guys, guys, please. No, it's not about me. Don't step on each other. Yeah. There's, there's plenty of room for everybody. One All at right. a time. Um, <laughs> the next one I have, you mentioned it, is Star Wars High Republic. Yes. With a totally badass creature and a badass Jedi. Yes, yes. And how did this come about? Uh, how did that come about? I was doing some work at Marvel. I think I just finished The Extinction which was a mini-series for Marvel that I did with the sort of side uh, uh, X-Men that they used and put in a a non-group, essentially, for a few issues. And from there, again, just I don't know what angel is on my shoulder looking (laughs) over me, but they asked me, Marvel asked. I think the editor, the assistant editor of The Extinction was also the assistant editor on the uh, Star Wars stuff. And he was asking, hey, we need a couple of fill-ins. Are you wanting to come over? And, of course, I mean, you can't say no to Star Wars is is my thing. So I said, yes, of course. And I went from there. And it's like puddle jumping. You go from here to here to here, and hopefully you get to uh, bigger puddles. (laughs) That's awesome. And then the creature in the back is very intricate. Yeah, I don't know what the hell that is, to be honest (laughs) with you. Since I only did fill-ins, I only have fragments of the story. Is that a hard assignment to be a fill-in artist? Yeah, because you're supposed to come in and actually keep the essence of what's already being told and continue it forward. But when you're sitting here going, I have no clue what happened. Oh, here, read the book and all that, and that's fine. But you have to rely on a lot of reference and hopefully a good editor, uh, or editors in this case, that can steer you into the right direction because you are representing these images and they should be able to tell you if you've got it right or wrong does the marvel way still exist where you get just an outline of a script and you have to draw and then they for the most part no and and you're right that was the marvel way where they just get a, a paragraph for a page and you would go on from there i think and more so because of star wars there are many eyes that have to look at star wars before it ever gets to print so i assume that they want every every I and every T and every dot dotted before it goes to print. Um, so everything has to be out there. All the, uh, all the dialogue, all the words, um, the descriptions, and the artwork, God help me. I have gone through so many revisions on The Mandalorian, and it's not from Marvel, it's from Lucasfilm. Because once it goes from Marvel, it goes to Lucasfilm, and they have to look at it. And they will say, no, that leg is a little too big. Or, no, that character actually has braided hair that falls over her right shoulder, not her left shoulder. So little things like that, which seem superfluous, and you're probably right. Lucasfilm takes a look at that with their property and is very, very picky about it. But, I mean, I guess that's why it's so great, though, is because they have that quality control. That's one way of putting it. Yeah. (laughs) We'll go with that one. Uh, The last one I have is for me. Um, you did this awesome Spider-Man yeah. against Doc Ock, and I don't even know where this is from. Is it from your sketchbook? That is from nothing, honestly. Then to show you how old this is, a friend of me, me, the anchor and the colorist are all friends, and we had never actually done a print. 
together. And we just say, hey, why don't we do something? Yeah, why don't we do something together? And we can sell it at a show. And this was right before... Which which Spider Man movie had Doc Ock in it? Uh, Spider Man Two. Spider Man Two. This was right before Spider Man wow. Two. So that's how old that is. Because I, I just honestly I typed in uh, your name and Spider Man, and that's yeah. the first thing that popped up. Yeah, never professionally worked on him, but this was a print that I had done. Is there a character that you have not worked on professionally that you want to work on? Oh, I'm sure. I mean, you know, loving the Marvel Universe growing up, there are all of those B characters. You know, Luke Cage and the Falcon and uh, Morbius. I was a fiend for Morbius. I would love to have worked on those. But I think I learned the most I've ever learned about comics reading Frank Miller's Daredevil. And that was always sort of a, a, an unintentional goal is to do a Daredevil book, but do it very much in the style of Frank Miller of that era. Do you think they could still do a Daredevil book like Frank Miller did back then? I mean, it really, and when I say a Frank Miller book, I, I really just mean the storytelling. Okay. So yes, I think you could still do that. Um, as good as it is, well, that's up to the writer. You know, are we ever going to get another Alan Moore in our time? I don't know, but I have my fingers crossed. Who is your favorite comic book writer working right now? Working right now. God, that's a good question because I, I am sad to say I read a lot, but I don't pay attention a lot. <laughs> um, and the writers escape me for the most part. Uh, I, I really would have to come back to that because I can't think of one. Who do you find yourself uh, rereading the most then at this point? I hate to say it. I reread the classics very much. I'll, I'll reread Watchmen, the Daredevil issues, all of that stuff. A lot of the, I mean, Walt Simonson's Thor run. I've never liked Thor or Asgard, and he gave me a love for it that has persisted to this day. So I, maybe I'm old school these days, but that's the stuff I really love. Hmm. So you're working on The Mandalorian. Is that the only thing you got going on right now? Uh, the only thing, well, again, because it's so many pages <laughs> and so time-consuming, it's the only thing I can do right now. I did that um, Shadow Doctor while I was doing The Mandalorian Holy also, cow. and it was, yeah, I, I, I was almost having to be admitted in the hospital. I don't even know how you did that because, one, they're totally two different books. Yes. Because in Shadow Doctor, it takes place in the 30s, yeah. and so you have to get that time period right mm -hmm. and then you have to go to a long time ago in a galaxy far <laughs> far, far, far away. away but it's futuristic uh-huh how does your brain work because that sounds really hard not not well apparently because <laughs> i couldn't keep that up for sure uh, but you know you it's like asking an actor how do you play a good guy how do you play a bad guy because i'm an actor i know how yeah. to do that as an artist you know you understand what those elements are for what you're doing and you just put them forward. Like I said, I'm very big on reference, too. So I will reference a lot of stuff when I'm doing a book. Uh, and The Mandalorian isn't any different. I'll, I'll reference a lot of the TV show and a lot of sci-fi uh, books that I like. Stuart Immerman, who did a Star Wars story, I, he was one of those books I kept close. Uh, Travis Charez, who loves to do uh, sci-fi stuff, I kept his stuff very close when doing The Mandalorian also. So thank you for being up here. We You're really welcome. appreciate it. Um, tell all these people where we can uh, find you. Yeah, I am on social media. I've got a website. It's kabalounge.com, K-A-B-A-L-O-U-N-G-E.com. And I've got a LinkedIn tree there that takes me to all my social media and whatnot. So please come by. And I'm at Pro Booth uh, number 21, I think, or against the wall. 
where all the cool artists are at. Where all the cool, expensive artists are. <laughs> well, this is the coolest one here. George, thank you for being on our show. Thank you, guys. We really appreciate it. Thanks to people that were out here. We appreciate uh, the it. one or two of you <laughs> yeah. that were out here. Thank yeah. you very much. We appreciate it, and have fun at Denver Fan Expo. Yay! Yay! Yeah. Also, uh, our booth is oh, right yeah. across from the Creator Stage, oh, yeah. and uh, <laughs> we have our own recording setup. So, if you're just a fan of uh, Denver Fan Expo and you just want to talk about anything at all, stop at our booth, and we'll record it and we'll put it on our show. Oh, you like really cool-looking microphones? <laughs> Go over there and give them a look. Exactly, they're red, not black, red, because we're we're different. <laughs> Huge round of applause, Denver, to the Real Nerds Podcast. We are just kicking things off. Look at that. Listen to that applause. Listen to him. I hope everybody enjoyed that episode of Real Nerds. It's a little different. Two interviews. Uh, I'm going to start putting our older interviews back in when it's relevant to what we've done because I don't want them to get lost because we've been doing this for 11 years and sometimes our feed is so long that some of our great interviews get lost in the shuffle. They're never lost. Only yet to be found. Yes. They're never lost as long as you remember them. Yeah, sure. obviously. Yeah, Pod, totally. The final cast tier. Uh, so if uh, Corinne sends us something or some other nerd, you'll hear it right now. If not, next week our film is Thor, Love and Thunder. Uh, so stay tuned for that. That'll be lots of fun. And we'll see you at the movies or Fan Expo. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to Real Nerds Podcast, a Nebulous Visions production. Stream or download episodes, read articles at realnerdspodcast.com. Stream us on Apple or Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or iHeartRadio. Follow us on Facebook, Real Nerds Podcast. Twitter and Instagram, at Real Nerds. Watch us on YouTube, Real Nerds Podcast. Email us at realnerds at gmail.com. Call us at 720-6Nerds5. Thank you to Sparks Mandrill, Mike at Plan 9 Studios, and Bologna for all of our groovy theme songs. And that's how you fucking do it.